This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to another edition of the Sports Startup Digital Debate Competition, brought to you by Pitch Madness and in partnership with the Sports Biz Group. My name's Tyler Kelly, founder of Pitch Madness. We're really excited to bring you two Elite Eight debates as we head into the business side of this tournament. Before we get underway, another big shout out to the team, our studio editor, Nadal Harvey, and Nick Hayden, founder of the Sports Biz Group. Lastly, the whole reason we put on these tournaments is to support the founders competing in them and trying to connect them to resources and investors that can get their companies to the next level. If you're interested in connecting with any of these founders, please reach out to us on our website at pitchmanis.com or any of our social handles, and we'll look to get you connected to those founders. Additionally, we have a pledge campaign where we're trying to raise $10,000 for the CDP COVID-19 relief fund going to frontline workers in the healthcare industry. Any way that you can support, Please either donate or share this content using the hashtag debate for COVID. Thank you again for your support. And let's get to introducing our founders. This founder believes technology will replace sports agents and be able to provide better competitive opportunities for athletes and coaches. Make some noise for Ainsley McAllister and Yuru Sports. Hi, my name is Ainsley McAllister and I'm the founder of Yuru Sports. After playing field hockey at the University of Michigan, where I was a multi-year captain and All-American, I went on to play professionally for seven different teams across the world. It was a life-changing experience, and one that I wish was easily accessible for every elite athlete. Though, in my case, it was far from easy. There are over 7.2 million teams looking to recruit, and there are over 95 million athletes who would love to play. Though, currently, there is no transparent marketplace to connect and inform these groups. We've built a solution to this global disconnect. Uver Sports, a sports platform full of information, opportunities, and connections. No borders, just sports. This founder believes traditional sports media publishers without live rights will be obsolete in a few years because athletes and entertainers will break their own news with journalists on their own social media once individual monetization becomes streamlined. Give it up for Tiffany Kelly and Cura Story. Hi everyone, my name is Tiffany Kelly. I'm founder and CEO of Cura Story. Um, Cura Story is a video tech marketplace where we connect videos by topics to brands for sponsorship. 
Um, we're starting with athlete content creators and connecting their videos to health, wellness, and fitness brands for them to sponsor. Um, currently, influence marketing is super annoying. Um, from 200,000 videos that we've analyzed on Instagram, only 39% of them perform at expectation. Content creators don't want to customize. They don't want to kind of do all of these things. So um, we've actually built tech to where we project engagements, we project micro-communities um, for the video, and we kind of connect that to the brands for brands to have their logo and brand awareness um, watermarked throughout the video. And so that's what we're doing. And super excited to have you guys kind of watch our debate. Thank you, founders, for those introductions. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. Welcome, everybody. We are in the Elite Eight of the Sports Startup Digital Debate Competition, and we are in the Sports Tech and Analytics. We have two amazing founders, Tiffany and Ainsley, ready to debate head-to-head -head on certain topics. So... Let's get ready to debate. To start things off, we're going to do a coin flip to see who will receive the first question. Ainsley, would you like heads or tails? Heads. It is heads. So would you like to receive the question or defer? Uh, I'll, I'll receive it. Okay, great. Oh, I wasn't thinking you were going to Bring it, bring it. <laughs> so I like the trash talk. So, uh... Remember, you'll each get 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted, and then the other person will get 45 seconds, and then you can banter back and forth. Good luck to the best of you, and let's put 10 minutes on the clock and get this started. So for the first question, do you think you should be optimizing for exit in the early stages of building your company? And Ainsley, you'll, you'll start with that. All right, great question. Um, so I personally believe that you really should not worry about optimizing for exit. I think really what you should be focused on is just building an awesome company that solves the customer's problem in an absolutely seamless way, um, brings so much value to your customers that the investors like offers will start coming to you. And once it has enough zeros that it can't be resisted, that's when you entertain it. Um, I do think that there is a lot of value in starting to think about who that could be um, and starting those relationships and those um, discussions though. And really, um, so we've started having discussions just to, to learn more about why companies acquire other like early stage startups. Um, so we've talked to a bunch of like big named athletic brands and tech marketplaces. Um, just on why, just so we have the insight of really having that in our back pocket, but it is not a, a focus. Um, we've been kind of focusing on positioning Yuru as a marketplace that's going to grow massively and where it will surely get offers down the line. Great. And Tiffany, your response? So I don't think you should fully ignore it. I do think that, and not saying that you said that, but I... I do think that thinking about it a little bit in the beginning does kind of help. I feel like this question is mostly about um, you should focus less on how you exit and more so just becoming a profitable company. Um, profitability tr trumps everything, honestly. Um, but yeah, I feel like when people ask about exiting, 
they're typically asking, do you want to get a choir IPO? Like what would make the most sense for you? And I, I don't think you should spend too much time on that. I think it's just making sure that your company is, um, the, like you said, solving a problem, but just extremely profitable um, and not um, spending crazy time thinking on how, but you should kind of have it in the back of your mind a little bit. Great, we'll just move right on to the next question after that. So according to CB Insights, 42% of startups fail due to lack of market need. If market forces have challenged your initial convictions, how do you weigh the responsibility of investor capital versus your determination? And Tiffany, you'll, you'll kick that question off in 45 seconds. Yeah, so hopefully um, you have had enough user interviews where market failure doesn't happen and customer indifference doesn't happen. So at the beginning, the two most important things that you need to focus on is um, coding and then also like building your product and then having user interviews. But let's say a black swan like COVID, right? Like their um, customer behaviors are changing. Um, your product could not be needed anymore within the market. And so I think what you need to do is just have a serious conversation with your investors of needing to pivot um, and coming with them like, hey, like data says X, like this isn't what customers want anymore. This is how their behavior has changed. This is how we're gonna use the rest of the capital that we have um, to pivot in this direction. And we actually need to raise X more to be able to do, do that if you need to. Um, but hopefully if a COVID doesn't happen, right? Like if you just have, if there is a market difference, I mean, I feel like it falls on you a little bit that you haven't done that was it. your that was your task for the four or five seconds so we'll, we'll toss it over to uh Ainsley for that yeah um so i think she made a lot of really good points um i we've been pretty fortunate um that as we've chatted with um kind of like our advisors who are marketplace experts um they've just like voiced how fortunate we are that we actually Yuru has been started with a market need um as it's not only something that I experienced firsthand as an elite athlete, but also there, as I was playing overseas, I talked to a hundred other athletes from volleyball, baseball, ball, um, uh, basketball, soccer, ice hockey, that were all dealing with the same problems that we exist. Um, so by us like really placing the 280 athletes, we've really gotten to know about our customers and um, we kind of focused on the small group um, that was field hockey, which is um, in the U.S. viewed as small, but it's actually the third largest sport in the world, um, which is shocking to so many people. And that set us a foundation to learn, grow, and really um, set, a, set a foundation for to get into basketball, which um, since announcing basketball, we've hit like gotten a lot of um, progress and unbelievable support. Um, and so it's really just like about creating value um, so that then um, with creating value to your customers, you create value to your investors. And as you have more members and grow your community more, it's really easier to close capital. So it's kind of that feedback is what we found, so. Anything to add to that, Tiffany? Yeah, I don't, did you? This is, did you, I don't know if you answered the question as far as like it being challenging. So like if a market need does change, what would you do? But I guess it sounded like you were just saying like, um, just provide value, which yeah, of course, at the end of the day. Like, yeah, so I guess, I guess like 
if you're bringing up like kind of COVID, right, what you brought up and this whole like kind of need to pivot, um, of course you need to talk to your advisors and hopefully you have awesome marketplace experts or advisors that are helping guide your decisions. Um, but yeah, it's just really important to kind of balance like sustainability is so important in this COVID time um, and trying to create growth. So we've really, during this time, we've been focusing on how do we continue growing our global member base as well as creating value. So we've launched this global virtual coaching. Um, so I think it just, I don't know if that's answering it a little bit better, but I do think it's important to talk to your advisors and pivot and create value to your members at all times. So. Yeah, agreed. Great. So <laughs> well, let's move on to the, the, the third question here. What is the most important role for a founder when scaling a company and why? Uh, consisting of day-to-day -day operations, recruiting, retaining, fundraising, product development, or something else. But what do you think is the most important role as a founder? And Ainsley, you'll start that question. Yeah, so um, when I went through Black Box Connect, it was a global founder accelerator in uh, San Francisco. They like really did this, this um, tool with us that was all about defining your North Star. And as a CEO, the most important thing is really being able to sell that North Star and making sure everyone is on the same page to get that and then help lead in a way that uh, everyone with like priorities laid out. Um, so like at Uru, we do a implement the uh, entrepreneurial operating system to just make sure we're all on the same page um, and all rowing in the right direction, so. Great, and Tiffany, your response? So I think about 40% of founders stay on as CEOs like three years after founding. And I think it's less like 25% once you get kind of close to exit, um, whether that be IPO or, or getting acquired. So I actually think the most important thing as a founder is being able to switch to CEO, like have your CEO hat. Um, and kind of just being able to let go of control. I know I get that question a lot because I am a technical founder and so being like in the product and making sure that when it is time that we reach product market fit, like being able to kind of step away and just let other people lead, um, I think is really important when it comes to like their niche um, and just letting go of control and actually trusting the people that you have kind of delegated these tasks to. Um, I feel like that is actually the biggest, like the biggest thing that a founder kind of needs to learn. Or, I mean, you become irrelevant, right? Like you get replaced with another, another CEO. So I do think um, trusting the people that you hire and um, recruiting amazing people that can lead, that you can trust them to delegate so you can kind of back off a little bit as a founder. Yeah. I completely agree with your uh, point about finding the right team. I think that's like a very huge thing. And if you find the right team, they're going to be the ones to help. And you give them the North Star vision that you guys are going to do big things. I do think that there's a lot of risk in delegating too much too early, um, just because you know your product best, you know your people best, you know your vision best. Um, and so until you can really uh, verbalize your North Star, I think that's a little bit tricky to actually delegate. So. Yeah, I mentioned after reaching product market fit. So 
um, kind of bringing them on and of course like still being a technical founder and being in the product in the beginning but once you do reach product market fit I think it's um, kind of knowing when to let your team lead. Absolutely. I'll, I'll throw in another uh, follow-up question off that is um, you know founder and CEO when um, would you come to a situation where you would actually step down as a CEO and in, into a maybe lesser role and replace somebody so if you could just kind of briefly explain what would be the circumstance and timing of when you would step down or if you would ever step down? I think it I think it depends on the person. So hopefully as a founder, you're self-aware enough to know like, hey, like I actually like problems and like the nitty gritty and being in the product. So um, once you kind of do make that switch to CEO, if it's not working, and then I definitely think you need to like be open with the board and um, your advisors. But I think it really just depends on the person. Honestly, if you do wanna make that switch. I'm, I've seen the switch go really, really badly for some founders where like they know that something's best and investors or um, board thinks differently and it just, it just doesn't mesh. And I think it's always just kind of backing up like with the data and just being self-aware, like, hey, like this works for me, this doesn't work for me, um, and kind of the switch needing to happen once that awareness kind of is happening. Yeah, so I'm like, uh, it's a, I have a little different perspective, a little bit, um, just because like I am not the technical co-founder, I I'm not able to code like you can. So um, I my skill set is really leading like i've been a multi-year captain then i've been a leader on multiple teams across the world um i also though we have a very open kind of dynamic and um team vibe at yuru where i want people to constantly give me feedback i'm constantly looking to learn and grow um, and i want to try to grow with this company as far as i can and and if it ever comes to a point where I'm not the best leader to take Uber to the next level, then that's going to be a discussion. Um, when, yeah, where I'll, where I'll step and things like that. So I definitely do think that as companies grow, uh, roles shift, and I understand that. But um, right now, it's it's all about leading this company to be in the right direction as fast as we can. So. Anything to also add to that, Tiffany, or before we move to the next question? Um, no, I don't think so. I think we kind of covered everything. Great. Being, so we'll, we'll, end <laughs> we'll end this on a, an overtime question. So what are the most important characteristics you look for in an investor? And uh, Tiffany, you'll start this question. Um, I know for us, since we are raising and we've had, had some, have had some deals kind of come into the pipeline. I think being strategic is important. Like, of course, being at the early stage, of course, having a check, but also um, someone that can assist in certain areas, I do think is important. Um, I also do believe that the strategic relationship kind of does come with like boundaries and just like trusting me as a founder and, and knowing that I'll kind of be open and obviously be open with metrics and kind of explaining how we're growing month over month. Um, so I think their strategic relationship is important, but also um, those boundaries kind of need to be set because I do feel like 
a lot of investors that want to be strategic, they're, um, they kind of want to be on the ground floor like every day, which I feel like can be a bit much um, just as a founder. And so just making sure that those, those boundaries are there and just, I mean, you gave me a check for a reason. So just kind of trusting me and knowing that I will give you insight and I will give you um, information month over month with how the company is, is going and working. Yeah, so I kind of have four key important things that I look for when I'm looking for an investor. Um, the number one thing, and it's non-negotiable, like I will not take a check if I do not feel this first one, is just them being respectful and an absolutely great human. Um, I think mutual respect is absolutely key to building a working relationship where we'll really challenge each other and like productivity like productively um, and help each other grow well. Um, like for example, one of our investors, David Asplauser, <laughs> um, he was the former pro head of product at Intel Sports and Yahoo Sports. And we've just had like, we come into discussions with very differing opinions, um, and which is so beneficial because there is that mutual respect. Um, and we end up coming out with something that is like, okay, way better than either of us came in with. So I think just having that mutual respect is number one. I think just like the, the aligned passion and desire to be a part of this team that's like go-getters and really passionate about uniting the world of sports and changing this industry. Um, and then having the expertise like Tiffany mentioned of like either a marketplace or athletes who've actually lived the experience and want to see this in the world of sports. Um, and then lastly, just like having the calling to be a social driver for like women's empowerment. Um, Tiffany, I'm sure you know this very well too. Like there's a, not a whole lot of us in the sports tech industry. Um, so we're like really, uh, is making a, a conscious effort to be like trailblazers in this industry, um, being a model that girls can really look up to. Um, so. We really want to find investors that believe in that and support our larger mission. I do think it, yeah, all amazing points. Um, I, I do think like investors are shifting to understand that female founders, I mean, are pretty amazing. Like first round capital just came out with a study saying, I think female founders are 30% more successful. I forgot what the, the actual value is, but it's, um, I've even had investors kind of mention it. So they're definitely kind of looking more towards why that actually is. And I think it's because we ask a lot of questions and we like to be in the in the details of things, which kind of make for an awesome founder. Um, but no, I think all those points are awesome. Great. Well, that wraps it up. Uh, well, thought out debate between the uh, two of you. If you could use the hashtag debate for COVID, let us know who you think that won that round. And if you haven't already, donate to our pledging campaign to support frontline workers in the COVID-19 relief fund. And now we're going to be on to the judges for their analysis and picks. Now let's introduce our judges. First up, Tracy DeForge, founder of The Players Impact. Next, Joey Brander, president and managing partner at First Serve Partners. And lastly, Diana Melancio, VC at Wise Ventures. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. 
All right, that wraps up an amazing debate in the Elite Eight for the Sports Tech and Analytics. Great job, Tiffany and Ainsley. And now we're on to the judges' votes and their analysis. So to kick things off, we're going to have Tracy, could you provide your analysis and your vote for this round? For sure, yeah, thanks. Really excited to see two very strong female entrepreneurs this round. Always a fan of that. Um, so I guess I'll start with the first question. I thought uh, the first round went to Ainsley. I believe that she's absolutely right. Uh, when you, how do you optimize for exit is really just, I believe you build for, um, for opportunities, right? You build for the opportunity. She said, you gotta solve the customer's problem and then you'll have those options. You'll have the optionality, I guess. Um, because uh, Tiffany's belief in becoming profitable doesn't always mean uh, that that's your exit, but I get, again, both very strong answers. Um, second round, uh, talking about the, the lack of market need and, and the being able to pivot. I think that that round definitely went to Tiffany. Super strong, very articulate way that she she talked about you know, the necessity around pivoting if you need to, but listening to market feedback. Um, and definitely she was strong enough to call out, uh, I think Ainsley's lack of an answer on that one. So that was good. Um, third round, I also gave to Tiffany, I think, um, she she had some really good answers as far as that role of a founder. Um, a founder can't just be a visionary. They have to be, you know, roll your sleeves up and getting there. So she had a much uh, more in-depth answer to that, which I really appreciated. Um, but then coming down through the other the other questions, and I don't want I want to be sensitive to time. Um, I thought that Ainsley had uh, some thoughtful, consistent uh, answers behind her uh, decision to work with investors um, and to how she would continue to lead the company. So at the end of the day, I chose Ainsley, um, but I really thought it was super super close match. Great, thanks for that analysis, Tracy. And that gives uh, Ainsley one vote. And now we're gonna move over to Joey for his analysis and picks. Thank you, yeah, I, I'm gonna have to go with uh, Tiffany on this one. Uh, I, I think that actually she almost delivered a knockout blow just from the first two questions alone. Um, I think that, you know, of course, while it's important to understand everything about your target consumer, what they're looking for, what their needs are in the white space you're looking to fill in the market, I think that uh, knowing equally as much, as much as possible about one, how you build either a profitable company or two, you know, how you build something that can be a, a, a compelling acquisition target for larger players in the space. Listen, if you're going to raise outside capital, if you're going to raise investor capital, which often you, you need to to compete, you're going to have to be able to answer those questions of how exactly you're going to do that. I think that with everything happening in the world right now on a macroeconomic level, the uh, you know days of companies that are incredibly high burn without any legitimate path to either profitability or a clear exit, I think, I think those days are long gone, um, as they should be. Um, and, you know, at, at the end of the day, you have to have a clear pan, plan or path to do one of those things. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be relying on raising round after round after round. And at some point, the investors are going to say, okay, where, where, how do I make my money back at the end of the day? You know, cash is always going to be king. And you have to figure out a way to, to, to answer one of those two questions. In the second round, uh, I think, uh, again, Tiffany made a ton of sense in terms of the 
the one distinct advantage a startup is always going to have over a larger corporate player is the fact that they can run incredibly lean and they can pivot incredibly fast. So if market conditions are changing, if they see another opportunity within their space, if there's something that they can capitalize on to be opportunistic, they can pivot in a day's time if they need to. They have the infrastructure set up uh, to be able to do that and, and, and you know, hopefully derive value from that. So you know, having the, uh, the founder having their pulse on exactly what's happening within their industry is essential um, in being able to use that as their advantage. And, and you know, I think the last couple of rounds were a bit more even, uh, but I agree with Tracy in that it's important for founders to be both visionaries and get in the trenches. Um, and, and, you know, as I said, it, it all just comes down to knowledge and knowing every single thing you possibly can, being obsessed with learning, not just about your customer, uh, but about how, how you turn this business into uh, into something that can, you know, put that cash back in either your pocket or that of your investors. So that's, what, that's the name of the game at the end of the day. Great. Well, thank you for that analysis, Joey. And we have a tiebreaker. So one vote for Tiffany, one vote for Ainsley to decide who will go to the final four. So, Diana, you are in the hot seat for this one. Could you please provide a analysis in your pick to decide who will go to the final four? Yeah, I mean, I thought um, it was a really great debate and it was really tight, uh, much like what, what Tracy said. I thought each founder made some solid points. Ainsley is really great at um, communicating her point of view. And, and then from an investor perspective, I thought that Tiffany is incredibly self-aware and knowledgeable about her, what her strengths are. And she seems like someone that would be coachable, which is something that's really important um, for venture capitalists. Um, so I'll, I'll do this uh, question by question. I'll look at my notes here. Um, the first question for me was actually a tie. I, I agreed with a lot of the points that they both brought up. Um, I don't believe that you should focus on an exit um, and instead focus on solving a real problem and ensuring that you're delivering significant um, stakeholder value. And then, you know, I think in general, a lot of seed stage pre-series A companies do a lot of unscalable things to ensure value for their early customers. And I'm sure that that's a lot um, both Ainsley and Tiffany are doing right now as they figure out what product market fit is and how to scale. Um, and then lastly, you know, just given the rise of the news of these overfunded and profitable companies like, you know, the WeWork disaster and, and Uber, I think it is um, good to keep an eye or at least have a plan um, for what profitability looks like. Um, so I, I sort of agree with both of them. So I, that one was a toss up. Um, on the second question with market need and market shift, I gave this one to Tiffany. Um, I like that Ainsley started her company doing exactly what she needed to, which is talk to a ton of stakeholders, ensuring that she's delivering value, but then she didn't really answer a question with any specifics. She brought up sustainability and growth, but didn't say like how. Um, I loved uh, Tiffany's answer around an honest conversation with investors, which I hope that you know my founders do, um, especially about pivoting, which is something that nearly all startups have to do. Um, so I thought that was great, and Tiffany took that question for me. Um, on the third question, um, that was also a tie for me because I thought they both made good points. Um, I think you should have a north star to rally your team around, and I also think that as you scale, you should you need to know when to let go and delegate. Um, but one, but what won the debate for Tiffany for me was the question around um, whether or not the CEO should step down. 
Um, as I mentioned at, at the beginning, I think Tiffany is incredibly self-aware and can speak to her strengths. Um, I think, yes, in the beginning, founders are best at articulating their vision, um, but often, um, what was she said? Uh, with young founders, unless the founder has previously also run a multi-million dollar company and scaled a team of, of that size, you really need someone with domain expertise and experience to come in and help build that company up. Um, so I agreed with Tiffany there and I, she won that round for me. And then, um, yeah, just quick touch on the, the last question about what they look for an investor, um, me. Um, <laughs> I think that it should be strategic. Um, Tiffany is, seems like she's very open to coaching. I love that Ainsley broke it down. Um, being respectful, uh, mutual respect is something that's incredibly important. I've been on the other side of it as a founder and I've seen VCs know exactly what to do after a 30 minute conversation um, to someone that's been running their company for several years. So um, I think that that's incredibly important. Expertise is important. And and obviously like I'm, I'm a big proponent of um, women's empowerment and funding female founders. So um, in the end, it went to Tiffany by a small margin, um, but Tiffany won it for me. Great. Thank you, Diana, for that. And congratulations, Tiffany. You just got a ticket to the final four. Well fought out battle by Ainsley. Good work on that end. Uh, thank you, Tracy, Diana, and Joey for all that analysis and feedback to our founders. And if you haven't already, please donate to the Pledge campaign to support the CBP. COVID-19 Relief Fund and use the hashtag debate, debate for COVID to let us know about who you thought won that round. Thank you, and we'll see you into the next round. This founder believes the world of sports will experience many changes in the next 10 years. He believes that to protect the health and well-being of athletes, team-sanctioned on-field practice time will reduce by 15 to 20% by the year 2025. All the way from the best coast, Jason Robinson and Playbook 5. My name is Jason Robinson, co-founder and CEO of Playbook 5. Playbook 5 is a learning management system that allows players and coaches to step onto the field and practice from anywhere. By using our platform, players are able to gain meaningful reps and help them accelerate the time it takes to learn their playbook as well as improve their confidence. This founder believes the medical and sports collaboration space is the biggest untapped market in the sports and fitness industry. Give it up for Partha, Anava, and Lasso.
Thank you, founders, for those introductions. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. All right, welcome, everybody. We are in the Elite Eight for the Sports Startup Debate Competition. This is the Athlete Performance in Wearables category, and we have two amazing founders, Jason and Partha. All right, founders, let's get ready to debate. To get things started, we're going to flip it off with a coin to decide who will field the first question. So, Jason, would you like heads or tails? Tails. It is heads. So, Partha, would you like to receive the first question or defer? Um, I'll defer. All right. So, Jason, you'll have 45 seconds to answer the question uninterrupted. It's going to be a hard stop. And then, Partha, you'll have your 45 seconds, and then you guys can go back and forth. Good luck to the both of you. Let's put 10 minutes on the clock and we'll start things off with the first question. How important is protection of your company IP for you? And the follow-up to that is what steps have you taken to protect yours thus far? Right, so so currently I would say IP is probably a six and a half out of 10 for us. Um, IP can be costly, especially if you're making a lot of changes to it. Uh, and as a company that is operating in a very innovative, fast-paced industry like virtual reality, uh, we, we do expect to make some product changes and alterations in the next 18 to 24 months. So with that being said, like that, we, we aren't really invested in um, any heavy IP there. However, we are invested in protecting our, our brand assets, which we feel like are the most important right now as we're continuing to develop the brand. Um, you know, we, we feel like as we become more of a a market leader and we have more market share and innovation becomes more of a priority for us we see ourselves bumping that up the priority list and it will become more of a 10 out of 10. Partha? Cool so I'm not sure if I can necessarily respond but I can answer the question considering that we're, we're in two totally different industries. Um, for us IP is huge because it's physical products so part of the fun with our company is that we're the first ones to do compression in terms of how it affects the body. So in apparel, the, the entirety of the IP landscape is that you have a bunch of patents, mostly design patents, very little utility. And the core of it is, this is how the outside environment affects the body. And we came into the landscape and we said, that's great, but the clothes you wear can actually affect your body and how it moves. So we are actually the first utility patent in that space that has to do with how apparel affects the body's movement which has been awesome for us and we use what's called a patent thicket which is my president jared's favorite favorite phrase that we use uh, but the gist of it is that we have layers of patents designed all the way back through utility uh, that not only encompass every joint in the body but they encompass different pieces of our technology and so uh, it's a it's a filing strategy that um, is on the sophistic sophisticated side from an IP standpoint, uh, but it is kind of par for the course for a product company, especially one where uh, we feel we've created a new product category. And so we want to take all steps to protect that. And uh, a little differently from, from your company, Jason, it's, um, it's harder to patent algorithms, data, that sort of side of things. And uh, it's, it's much easier to find workarounds when people do put those patents out and they share exactly how they're doing it. Uh, for us, we're able to be a little bit more broad because the beauty of a utility patent in our space is that uh, we're creating something very novel. So you would have to go a whole phase of innovation beyond what we're doing to really uh, be able to compete. And it, it's a very, very crowded space beyond that. So 
Um, that's kind of how we thought about our IP strategy. Well, let's, let's, let me ask a quick follow-up question here. So since you guys do have different products and the IP might be valuable to, to both of your comforts uh, differently, so how would you deal with a situation if you were threatened uh, from an IP perspective, a data perspective, um, it doesn't necessarily be about a patent or a trademark, but how would, what's your process of dealing with a potential IP threat? Um, so Jason, if you could just kind of follow up with that. Uh, yeah, process. so I mean, you gotta rely, rely on the facts. I mean, the best thing you can do, it becomes a litigation issue and you have to show what you've been doing. So if there was an opportunity or something that came up where someone felt like we were infringing or, or we felt someone else was infringing, we would first create a backlog in, in which we have tracked everything. So we know when we've been doing things, we know why we've been doing things and we try to show our case. I mean, it's the most you can do. It becomes a he said, she said type situation. Uh, and we would rely on the facts. And usually the most transparent company or party in that matter comes out on top. Uh, if the facts are in your favor, they are. And if they're not, then, you know, the patent of uh, the, the USPTO essentially will agree on the other side. But we feel like um, the best thing to do is just show what you've done, why you've done it, where this decision was made, be as detailed as you can. So hopefully they believe whatever your claim is. And Partha? Yeah, just to add into that, um, transparency is big in those types of situations. I have to be a little bit careful with this question because I can't get too specific about how we would deal with an infringement. But what I can say on a high level is that, especially in product infringement cases, um, a big challenge that companies have is larger companies will really step on top of your, your IP landscape before patents are issued. Uh, part of the reason we used the IP strategy we did is we were able to get certain aspects of our technology cleared prior to some of the more uh, major aspects of our technology that allow us to enforce earlier on as opposed to a utility patent which could take anywhere from three to seven years. And so uh, that that really fed into how we how we built our patents and, and went through the process because we wanted to enforce as soon as possible. Great, all right, we'll move on to the next question. So as a founder dealing with internal decision-making, what would you do if you didn't decide between two options? You believe one option is, is correct and your entire team believes the other option. How would you handle that? And Partha, if you could leave with that question. Yeah, totally. Um, so my answer is very close. Uh, I had the pleasure of seeing Ray Dalio speak a little while back and um, got to chatting with him afterward and really getting into the heart of how they do decision making at uh, Bridgestone. And um, one of the really unique things that they do over there is they weight everybody's opinion based on their areas of expertise. So um, the way that we think about decision making is that everybody on the team, I mean, if I didn't hire people more, more intelligent than myself, I would not be building a great company. So everyone on the team is there because they're better than me at whatever they're doing. So the core of each decision is when it falls into someone's area of expertise, they get more voice in that matter. And a big challenge is that you have to be cognizant of when people's personal biases affect their decision making. So if you can judge and identify that somebody has removed personal bias from the, from the situation, it's just brought their industry expertise. And really at the end of the day, it comes down to a gut feeling on people's parts as opposed to a direction you move forward. There's so much information we gather, right? So subconsciously we kind of have an inkling of where we want to go. Um, that ultimately helps Cardi, in- Cardi, Cardi, you're off there, but um, we'll, we'll give uh, Jason his 45 seconds there. So the uh, first thing you have to do is remove yourself from the equation. And, and I think any leader has to understand that if you really have that, that self-belief and the confidence in yourself to be a leader, that you've put the right people in place. 
So you have to remove yourself from the situation, see it from that perspective, and then have some level of trust. Um, then it just becomes okay. How can you back your claim up? The worst thing is when you hear something and it happens with my co-founder, not all the time, but often because we're, we're in a fast paced industry and it's like, okay, that's your opinion. Now, what's the why behind it? And, and I do the same. There's my opinion. What's the why behind it? And it becomes, what's the burden of proof as to why you feel that way? And when I'm listening to that from other members of the team, I'm listening to how much they're tied to the solution and the overall collective goal of the team, not their own personal agenda. So for me, I always go back to intellectual honesty. Is your perspective for you or is your perspective for the overall consensus and the goal of the team? And, and, and sometimes I'm wrong, you know, and, and it's okay because again, I trust that I put the right people in the right space to make those decisions. And, yeah, you know, just, just respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Jason. I love where your head's at, man. Um, he, he's pretty spot on and I, I can tell we both come from a sports background. Um, a big part of leadership is being able to listen to your teammates and let them do what they do well. Uh, the one thing that I would add is their, uh, the CEO title, right? The, the leader of the whole team is there at some point because they have a vision that is more than each person is seeing individually. And so there are times where uh, you may not have all of the proof in data or numbers. And there's a lot of times, especially in innovation, where you're pushing the boundary. And so there's no, there's no data that the road you're traveling is gonna pan out other than that founder's experience in the space, everything that they're seeing, plus the fact that they're not only getting uh, info from one silo of their business, they're getting it from every single aspect, plus all the investors, plus all the different partners they talk to, plus all their peers in the space. Um, so there's there's this kind of X factor of decision-making that can play in there. Um, so I feel that that's also important to consider. Um, although I will say, uh, echoing Jason, kind of just coming back to the root of all, you put great people in the place to make great decisions and it's the leader's job to make sure that aligns with the central vision of the company. Great, we'll move on to the next question. How would you deal with high churn in your first or second cohort of customers? And are there any tactics for reducing churn before it happens? Jason, you'll leave that question. Yeah, so uh, churn is an indication of the misalignment between your product and your user's needs. So I would back it all the way up and just ask more questions. So you want to rely on, you know, making user driven decisions. You want to rely on making user data driven decisions uh, and try to get ahead of that. And I mean, the only way to reduce it going forward is to continue to have those conversations and continue to invest time and resources in that. I, oftentimes you, you see companies kind of go this way and, and then this this little thing called listening starts to, to, to dwindle a little bit. You have to keep listening as you continue to grow to make sure that what you're creating is still relevant for your user's needs. So the best thing I would suggest is just staying in contact with the person that you're serving. Arthur? Yeah, I'd like to add on to that. So I agree fundamentally that the communication with the customer is critical to be able to reduce aspects like churn. One of the things that uh, we're fortunate in is we have a, a remarkably low return rate as compared to many other peers in our category. And the reason why is that that zero to one phase, when you're starting something and really figuring out product market fit, the point is not to go. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. 
There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. 